Well, good morning. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. I'm excited about week 10 of 12 of our summer series, The Unshakables. Now, I need your participation here. James Bond liked it shaken, not stirred. stirred. I'm here to tell you that in the cocktail of life, you will be shaken and you will be stirred lots And let me just remind you, if you're too young again to to see that, that it'll happen lots, but you can have a faith that's nonetheless unshakable. We're talking about 12 pillars of what unshakable faith is for a Christian. They track with the 12 chapters of the Purple Book, which many of us are really close to completing, right? Too silent, that question. Get ready for other questions in the next 30 minutes or so, okay? Uh, Last week, we talked about unshakable trust and how the unshakable person trusts in the person of God. Now today, I I can't think of any more better appropriate way to measure where our trust really is because today we're talking about money. Money. There is no better way to really see where our faith is. And today we get to really apply and activate what we've really been covering all summer in the Unshakables series. Today we're going to talk about unshakable spending. Unshakable spending. Now when it comes to talking about spending, giving, tithing, generosity, money, all these things, these of course are the things that people love to hear preachers preach about. So you're welcome. You're in for a treat, uh, especially when you're visiting. This is the best topic, right? You know, Jesus talked about money, I think probably more than really anything else, because Jesus knows the deceptive way that money can control us. And more importantly, Jesus knows that money is one of those amazing uh, diagnostics for where your heart really is. And he's after your heart. He's really after your heart. He's he's the one who coined the phrase, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We're going to be in Matthew 25 this morning for one of the most famous parables of Jesus, namely the parable of the talents. Now, as you're preparing your heart for God's word, ask yourself this, what what kind of spender am I? How do I spend? How do I spend my money and my, my time and even just my days? Is it, is it given to God or is it buried in the ground? Matthew 25, verse 14, starting there. Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have, rece- you have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But the master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, help us to miss none of the severity of how we spend money in life. The preciousness of every beat of our hearts that we tend to take for granted. Every dollar you've entrusted to us. We ask that you would do a miracle in us today, that you would create spenders that spend well our lives and our money to the degree that our lives and our money and our living is a good investment that has a perfect dividend of eternal joy in your presence, Master. Amen. Amen. I want to issue a small disclaimer. Now, it's not an apology, it's just a heads up about how I really love to preach about money and sex. I say money and sex because topics like money and sex have a unique way of just breaking down those religious facades where we're kind of faking the funk when we come to church and sitting in the church chairs, right? And like, yeah, amen, brother. When we preach about money and sex, I see the, the feathers being ruffled and you, know, you just can't quite fake it as much, right? Preaching about things like this has a way of us getting real. And God uses it to facilitate real and honest relationships when we get into these things. So I love it. The other thing that money and sex have in common too is none of us come into the conversation having all our stuff together. Uh, regarding sex... No matter how pure you think your opinion about sexuality is, or how pure you think your past is, you, like me, enter into the vicious conversation that our culture is having about sexuality, for instance, that's intolerant on both ends. You enter into it with your broken pieces nonetheless. And what we all have in common in this regard is that we need Jesus to purify us, 
No one's pure. Our only option is being purified by him. And money is so much the same way. It doesn't matter if you were raised by two CPAs and you've been taught to account perfectly and invest well and you might be wealthy, you still have a certain brokenness that you bring to God's table in regards to money and how you spend and how you give and generosity and fundamentally brokenness and how we see who the provider is. And so we come to the table like that. And look around the room for a minute. Just kind of look at the people who look so beautifully different than you. There's a good chance that the people around this room grew up different than you too in regards to money. And it's no better or no worse, but there's just different broken pieces in this room. And so you can look back up at me. I'm saying, therefore, you can let your guard down with me as I'm preaching to you about money. Because I enter into this thing with my own broken pieces, my insecurities and inadequacies, and I enter into it in trusting the word of God to restore me in this process, just like you are. Trusting that God's the only one who can take broken pieces and make a a beautiful mosaic out of us and all our inadequacies. His power is made perfect in human weakness. And we see that human weakness very distinctly when we're talking about money, y'all. So here we go. Here's, I, have, I have five points as I unpack this parable. Uh, the first three are things that money is not. Uh, the next one is a prohibitive warning. And my last point is a directive challenge to all of us. So here we go. Money point number one, it's not yours. It's not yours. I figured I'd get my hardest point out of the way right away. It's not yours. Now, here in the good old U.S. of America, we love us some private property, do we not? We love to talk about private property. Uh, Now, we need to be careful, though, when we enter into discussion. And when we go to God's word, we need to understand that the Bible wasn't written in Alabama or anywhere on our continent. The Bible was written in mostly the ancient Middle East. And so we need to be careful about how we conflate or confuse timeless Bible truth with American or Western private property understanding. Now, in one sense, the Bible agrees with American values in that property itself isn't ultimately uh, belonging to the state. And that's about kind of where the agreement ends. Because it's not the government's, right? But then again... It's not yours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the psalmist says. Your money isn't your money. It ultimately belongs to the Lord. So verse 14, our first verse of our passage that we read, for the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Everyone say entrusted. Good. Now everyone say His property. You all are doing good. Watch later when the master so harshly and severely rebukes the wicked servant. He says, verse 27, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now I think that Jesus, by telling this parable, 
in this way, he's wanting to drive home the point that ultimately, it's not yours. My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. Your money is not your own. Now, last month in my message about church fellowship, I talked about tithing, just real briefly, abruptly. Uh, I talked about how church living in the first century wasn't separated from first century church giving. And uh, it, it would have been some really good points had I not rushed the teaching of God's word and uh, had I properly developed context. Uh, I can do better. And I'll, actually, I can tell you I'm sorry for not slowing down and being careful to divide God's word. Uh, but let me have another go at this whole tithing thing. Our passage from today talks nothing about tithing or even just the, the act of church giving at all. Talks nothing of it. But there's something that it points out here that's more fundamental than what we do with the money that's entrusted to us. There's a fundamental, there's a fundamental understanding before anything else that it's not ours, ultimately. That what we have belongs to the Lord. In fact, tithing is precisely that. It's an acknowledgement in an act that everything belongs to God. It's an acknowledgement that when acted upon by us in faith, functions really as a safeguard for us. Because tithing and giving itself is first and foremost for the giver. And technically though, tithing isn't even really giving. Because you only give what's already yours. But tithing, those of us in this church, for instance, who tithe by giving or rendering uh, 10% of our income to the church, we're really just simply saying that, God, this is yours. He doesn't need our money. The church doesn't necessarily just need it to pay bills technically. I, I give because it's an act of faith that stands in agreement with, God, this is yours. My life is yours. Everything I have is yours. It's yours. Now, I understand. Let's, let's just be real. This is strange. This is radical. But everything in the unshakable life is radical. And, and if you were to look at our church finances and our books, you'd see that there's just a disproportionately high number of unusually radical people in this area, but they're radical in how we live and how we pray. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, that's all I'll say about church giving as an act. But the point is, is that you have temporary responsibility for things that are entrusted to you and kind of like, you know, relative autonomy over those things for a moment to to make good decisions with what God gives you. And if you want it to, to make good decisions and knowing how to function with those things, then let's keep listening as we go through this passage. But the first thing you can nail down before we get to wisdom with what to do with what we temporarily have entrusted to us is to nail this down, that ultimately it's not mine. It's not yours. Everything belongs to him. My money belongs to him. My life belongs to him. It's not mine. It's not yours. Your body isn't yours. All you have is temporarily entrusted to you by a good God. It's not yours. Number two, 
It's not fair. It's not fair. Life isn't equal, necessarily. Now, I I really don't want to ruffle a whole bunch of feathers when I say that I don't think all of us are given exactly equal opportunities in life. I don't think we're all dealt the same cards. I have privileges that others don't have. And this isn't something to be ashamed of, but this is something that's shameful to not admit or acknowledge. One of these guys, one of these servants was given five talents. The other was given two and the other was given one. It's not fair, but it doesn't mean it's not just. See, God knows how to distinctly provide for different people in different ways so that we can diversely and uniquely reflect his abundance together. Now, if you think that uh, having more talents makes you better, it doesn't. It makes you no better if you have more talents than someone else. It also makes you no worse, as if having more is some dubious evil in and of itself. It's not. Having less makes you no worse and no better. It's not necessarily fair. Now, I said that we're not all given the exact same thing, and that's okay because God is just, but let me point out at least one thing that we all have exactly in common. We all function within the exact same bounds of time. Speaking of 24-hour days that all of us share in common. And this is important to understand when we break down what this talent thing was that the master in the story was kind of doling out to these guys. The coins uh, had to do with measurements of time. You know, Bible currency uh, wasn't measured on the gold standard like our American Fed. Uh, Talent... A talent was uh, a currency that had to do with 15 years. It was about equivalent to 15 years of labor, which is a lot of money. So when this guy takes his whole inheritance and divides it up among these servants, it's a lot of money. The time standard is a way that we can understand the money that the Bible's talking about with how we understand things now because inflation doesn't affect time. That's why I kind of don't like when Bible translations try to translate things like talents and things like that in the Bible into like American currency. That's just another little issue I have. But we all have the same understanding of time. Think about how you spend. Think about how you spend time. Do you spend your time in a way that brings profit? Does it, does it profit souls? And especially your own soul? Does it enrich the kingdom of God, the way you spend? Or do you live as though you're not going to have to give an account for that? And think back to our parable for a second. In terms of money and coinage, these three servants had the same basic understanding for what time is, but they weren't given the exact same amounts of the money, right? But they all had the same ability to properly invest what they had. It's not fair. It's not sameness. But it is the same God who judges the one with one as who judges the one with five. That's why it's not fair, but it's just, because God is just. They were all given 100% of what God, the master in this story, intended to give them. 
And they were held 100% accountable for what they had and 0% accountable for what the other guys had. The master in the story wasn't comparing between the two. In fact, it's remarkable how he wasn't. And so I'm going to ask you a personal question. Why do you tend, like me, to judge yourself based on the standard of what God's given someone else? Whether it's your sibling or your spouse or your friend. God doesn't do it and neither should you. It's not necessarily fair. We've all been supplied by God in different and distinct ways. And we're all responsible to God for what he gives us. Comparing yourself to other people kills your joy. It muffles your praise. Stop it. It's not fair. But God is just and we don't have the exact sameness. We have diversity. We don't have uniformity, but we can have unity and harmony because it's not yours. And it's not fair. Number three, it's not lacking. It's not lacking. The servant with one talent didn't have five, but he had precisely what? Enough is the answer. You're going to say one. He had enough. That's one thing that all three servants also had in common. They all had enough to work with, provided they worked with it. And I think the fundamental reason the servant with one talent, let's call him the wicked servant, since that's what Jesus called him, it's fair to say that comparing his you know, lot to the others wasn't the, the fundamental reason why he failed. Fundamentally, his greatest sin was an unbelief about who the master is. He believed a lie about the master. Remember, he says, I came to you and I was afraid because you, well, it's you, you're a hard man. And the master response kind of goes with him, I think, like, okay, well, if I was, then why didn't you spend it? If I'm this bad person, you would think you would do something about it. I think, honestly, church, today, in 2017, our biggest struggles with how we waste money and time and life and breath comes down to this fundamental issue. It's a misunderstanding of who God is, like everything else. Who is God? That's our grave problem today. If we trusted in the goodness of the provider, I don't think that any of us would feel like we're lacking. If you think you're poor, there's something fundamental you're missing and crucial that you're missing about who your God is. Psalm 23, this is my favorite psalm, starts out like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love it in Spanish better. El Señor es mi pastor, nada me falta. The, the, the Lord is my pastor, my, my shepherd, and nothing do I lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. You don't lack. His provision isn't lacking. Why? Why do I not lack? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Now, David, King David wrote this psalm. And one could say, oh, well, he, knows, he doesn't think anything's lacking because he's a king in a palace. Look, I think he wrote it in the pasture before he was in the palace. I don't think he was lacking because he had a king's supply of food and provision. He was lacking because the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
And today, if you think you're constantly feeling like you're lacking, perhaps what you need more than anything else is to come to know the Lord Jesus as your good shepherd, as he is, and submit your life to him and, his, and rest in his providence. Because what, when what you have is submitted to the goodness of the good shepherd, it's always enough. It's never lacking. It's, in fact, it's always overflowing with what he says here is abundance. There's always abundance. There's always enough for abundance. Because when you understand the infinite blessing that comes from an infinite God, that you have a direct connection to him, you'll understand what, what that other guy has, or that billionaire over there, what he has is lacking. But the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. In fact, let's talk about abundance, this peculiar phrase in our passage, verses 28 and 29. This always kind of didn't sit right with me, so let's jump into this. He says to the wicked servant, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have in abundance. But for one who, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know, I used to think that this parable, this part of the parable is kind of unfair. Like, that's unjust. Taking it away from the guy who has so little. And then my perspective changed a lot when God put me over leading things and gave me certain responsibilities. Especially in leading a church. There's only so much time that I have to to do what I can to, to help people. And I want to help a lot of people. I want to see God do miracle after miracle after miracle. So what I have to do is I need to invest in people who are investing well, who are capable, capable of multiplying the blessing. When I'm sent to, to different churches and, and to help with missions or campus ministry, I want to go to places that are already investing their resources into things that we value because I don't want to waste my seed on soil that's not ready. And as harsh as that sounds, it's because I want to make sure that I don't waste what God's given me to spend well. And likewise, the way God invests, as far as we know, it's not necessarily just need-based. Yeah. It's not needs-based as much as it's abundance multiplying, which is, by the way, the best way to meet the most needs. I, uh, three year, or four years ago almost now, we moved into this building and a new couple joined our church and uh, got to know them a little bit. The husband in this story, real pe- this, this example, the husband in this family, real peculiar, wonderful, strange man. Let's just call him Scott because his name is Scott. (laughs) One of the things about Scott that blessed me is he has a passion for the Bible and a knowledge of scripture that far uh, exceeds my own. And uh, when I first got to know Scott, I would, I would feel insecure because of that. Like what I have is lacking And so I would try to like sound smarter around him until the Lord rebuked me and said, Peter, I didn't send Scott into your life to show you what you're lacking, but to overflow his abundance onto you and to overflow your abundance onto him. If you're submitted to the Lord Jesus and you're in the family of God of other people who are submitted to Jesus, our abundance spills over. We have enough. Nothing we have is lacking. You know, all three servants had enough 
None of their provision was lacking, and yet in another sense, it was little. Remember he said to the first two, you've, uh, you've been faithful with little, little, the master said. You'll be granted over, you'll be put over much. What you have is enough. It's not lacking, and yet it's little compared to what God wants to do in your life. It's not yours. It's not fair. It's not lacking. Now, number four, this is the prohibitive warning. Don't dig. Don't dig. Verse 18, he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Don't dig. In fact, ask yourself this. What are ways you're doing this today where you're digging, you're burying what God gives you instead of spending it the way he wants you to? Some of us, it's not that complicated. We're literally digging ourselves into debt by spending irrespective of our income, right? Uh, And that kind of short circuits the provision because when we're faithful with what we have, if it's little, it's... It's an invitation for more. And God doesn't want to damage you with more debt. You know what I'm saying? His goodness sometimes is, is waiting on that, as far as my life's been concerned. Some of us are hiding the talents and the gifts that God's given us instead of properly spending them as an offering to the Lord, as something that exhibits faith, a risk. Like, I care more to spend this to glorify God and I care about other, someone else thinking it's lacking. Spending our lives with faith. I used to love what my pastor in Austin said before we planned this church. He always used to ask, uh, how do you spell faith? It's R-I-S-K. Life and spending it wisely involves risk. And the foolish risk is the refusal to risk at all. And that's just what the servant of the one talent did. He wasn't judged for having less, but for not using what he had, right? In fact, remember in Luke 21, the, the widow who, who had way less than one talent, but Jesus commended her for giving more than everyone else because she, she, she risked, she spent, she didn't dig what she had. She, she offered it in, in, a, in a moment where it's like, God's the only one who can help me here. And what drove this servant's digging? What led to him digging it into the ground? Remember he said, I I, I was afraid. Fear kills faith. Kills faith to to do what's right by, by God and your family and how you spend. Fear kills faith, but perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. He's after your best, not someone else's best. He wants you to, to, to use what he's given you, not what he's given someone else. Don't dig. Now finally, for that directive challenge, my last thing is this. Play your hand. Play your hand. A few weeks ago, my mom came into town to visit us, and I don't know why I had never learned to play the card game Rummy. Uh, before this, but you apparently can't teach an old dog new tricks. And uh, so here's how rummy, rummy goes. At the end of each hand, 
You calculate your score for that hand based on the cards you lay down and the particular value of each card. But you have counted against you the cards that remain in your hand that you didn't play. And this is such an appropriate metaphor for life. Whatever hand has been dealt to you, play your hand. Use what God's given you to glorify him, to enrich others with his abundance. Play your hand. Whatever's been given to you, spend it well. You can use it to advance the kingdom of God, not just dig in with fear. It's an act of faith like, oh, God's my provider, and tomorrow he's my provider too, so today I'm going to take the right risks. I'm going to actually give you a, a special challenge right now to just kind of prime the pump for, for doing this. I made that phrase up all on my own there. I want to help you to take just kind of an unusual risk. Do something this week that, that's just kind of out of the ordinary. Whether it's like giving someone a ridiculously large tip somewhere at a restaurant or, or somewhere in, someone in your growth group that you know could really use a blessing and it costs you something. Do something just out of the ordinary that's extravagant and full of faith and risk. Something that hurts a little bit for you. It's not yours. It's not fair, but it's not lacking. So don't dig. Play your hand. Ultimately, you need to know that Jesus played his hand. God the Father sent his son not when we were just wasting our lives and digging. We were already dead. We were dug into the ground ourselves. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but God came to bring you life. When we were dead, God became man in Jesus, and he lived. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead so that he could give life to us. And so you can only give out of the abundance of what you've already received from Jesus overflowing. So give and, and play your hand, but you've got to take it from God. You've got to receive from God all the time, overflowing. And give out of that faith. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to, we're going to end with a prayer in the form of a song. And this prayer to you can literally mean, God, I give myself to you. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're here and the way you kind of spend your life and your money, God's shown you, you've never placed your faith in me and now's your moment. And you can say, God, I repent from digging my life away into my own selfishness. I give my life to you. God, use me. It can be a prayer. As you sing, you can become born again right now. I'm going to advise you, if that's you, don't be in a hurry to leave. Tell somebody about it so that we can help and grow together, okay? You might be singing this song, and as we sing this song, you're saying you're repenting for how you're digging in some area of your life or your finances. Let's give ourselves to our good God.